Well, this is the second to last passage that we will read together as we move through Malachi. And this morning's passage is going to use the imagery of a sunrise. And I have to say, as a preacher, it feels like a sunrise for me, like I'm coming out of the dark. I picked Malachi, and I think it's the perfect book for us as a church, because we do need to understand our priesthood. I think we need to grow in the way that we own it and enjoy it together, and we need to grow in it together and come under the new and renewed understanding and appreciation for Jesus' perfect priesthood over us. And that's going to take time, and I think this book is a good start. I picked it because I think it's the book that we need. And I don't know about you as hearers, but as a preacher, I'll say that in the course of preaching through this book, there were some difficult passages, more difficult than I anticipated on the front end, and some of them really rocked me back on my heels as I prepared and tried to preach through them and hold out good news and see the good news in the midst of some very dark words. God's words to his people aren't always easy. And you know this from reading the book together with me. In the accusations of this prophecy, there are times that they feel very heavy, almost wearying. And multiple times through the book, that is what God has told the people they think about him and about his words. And that's the way that they were going to hear it. And in a sense, that gives me a little bit of comfort. Because in the weeks that I felt like the words were heaviest or darkest, it probably meant that I was hearing them the way they were intended. Even while the people argued with God, every passage along the way has reminded us, at different points and at different volumes, as we've said, sometimes whispered and sometimes shouted, That their story in the midst of their failure is not hopeless. And this morning that hope is unleashed and it burns brighter than it has through the rest of the book. And so let the whole passage feel like a sunrise for you this morning. Little Christians, this morning in our passage we're going to say more of what I just said in the baptism instruction. That our names are written together for a reason. Our passage will talk about that. We'll discuss that in the sermon I want you to think about how our names are written together in baptism and in membership. But more than that, I want you to think about why our names are written together. If you're a young theologian this morning, I want you to spend time trying to answer one question primarily. Why are our names written together for the Lord? Does he write our names together as a list waiting for judgment or is it something else? This is the good news of Jesus held out even more clearly and brightly as we approach the end of Malachi's prophecy. Malachi 3, verses 16, through the first three verses of chapter 4. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you have been kind to us all through this book to hold out your good news, glimpses and images of the drama of your redemption in Jesus the Son, his perfect priesthood in the place of our failing, twisted priesthood, his perfection in the place of ours, his sacrifice coming over, overcoming our weak and defiled sacrifices, his generosity as the one who is rich, being made poor, overcoming our greed and theft. We ask that you would hold out your good news to us again this morning. Let it burn bright in our hearts. Let us look forward in hope with rejoicing and celebration to the day when the Son of Righteousness will rise on us finally and we will see, like men and women who have been living through the dawn, and see clearly at high noon. We ask that you do these things for us for our building up in the faith, our being built together as your people, and for your glory as we rejoice and praise you for your kindness to us. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It has taken a while, even in a short sermon series, it has felt like it's taken a while to make it to this point in the book. This is the first narrative piece of the whole book. To this point, the whole book has run, like a lot of prophecies, as a covenant lawsuit. This has been a listing of accusations and arguments. We didn't even have the narrative introduction you normally have in a prophet's book. The word of the Lord came to this guy who was this guy's son where he lived here, and this is his story. It just started in, the word of the Lord through his servant Malachi, and there you go. This is the first time we get a narrative break, and it's not just a break in form, it's a break in the tone of the book. This is the first time we actually get to see repentance in the people and see faith from the people who to this point have been described as nothing but faithless. We have read passage after passage where their failures are listed out. And along the way there have been promises of deliverance, promises of hope, but we haven't actually got to... We haven't actually gotten to see it take root in the people's hearts. And this morning we see it. This morning the the Lord's words in the book stop for a moment and we get to hear, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. He paid attention and listened to them. And he turns for the first time in kindness, not as a kindness that's far off. He deals with them kindly because their hearts are soft before him in verse 16. We're finally there. The arguments are over. From this point forward in the book, there are no more disputes from the people. All through the book you have had, how have you loved us? How have we robbed you? How have we spoken hard against you? How have we wearied you? And through the course of preaching in the book, we've talked about it in terms of argumentative children. Your children do this with you at home. And you can hear the whiny, disgruntled, and unbelieving tone in their voices all through the book, and it finally stops. When we get to this point, the arguments are over. And now we have promises for judgment, and those promises now deal with people outside. God says, you will once again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. 
But to this point, that distinction has always been held out in the future. And the question has always remained in the back of their minds as hearers. God, to this point, has not answered the question for them fully. Through the course of the book, he has talked about judging sin, disciplining his people, squashing iniquity and weak faith. But to this point, the question has always been, will it be for us too? And we finally get to this point in the book. We actually get to see all of these things take hold in their hearts. And notice it wasn't, at least it's implied, that it wasn't among everyone. It wasn't the people as a whole. It was those who feared the Lord, and they spoke with one another. There's a subset inside the people. The biblical term we see often is a remnant. The Lord has always preserved himself a remnant. By his grace, he has always been writing some of their names together, pulling them together in faith. And we get to see the fruit of that this morning, and it's a joyful relief. Hopefully not just for me as a preacher, but for you as hearers, as you listen to this, to hear hope held out and see it take root. Not just hypothetically, not just as a possibility. The people are doing it. They're hoping and resting in the Lord, and the Lord is promising kindness to them. And he's not just talking about rejoicing over them someday, even though he talks about them as his treasured possession finally and ultimately in the future. He's talking with them as a father who delights in his son. He's talking with them as a Lord who delights in his people, who treasures them now and looks ahead gladly and joyfully and hopefully for his final treasuring of them. We have seen division in the names through the book. In chapter 2, we saw division between what Levi used to be and what the house of Levi has become. And later in chapter 2, we saw a cry for the God of justice to come and execute justice with people out there. And the Lord said, no, you don't want it just yet. I need to refine you like a refiner's fire before I deal out justice finally and fully. You want me to be patient. In the beginning of 5, we saw the promise, I will draw near to you for judgment And there you had the theme of distinction again. I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will burn up and consume the arrogant and wicked, the evildoers. All through the book, the Lord has cautioned them, be patient for my judgment. And now, we have the promise that in the end, judgment will come in the Lord's timing. And it will be perfect. But you want to be refined first. This idea of burning happens twice in the book. The first time it was burning for the purpose of refining, burning off the impurities to have a choice in precious people refined like gold or silver, the way we do precious metals. But when we get to it in chapter 4, it's a different burning altogether. Behold, he says, the day is coming burning like an oven not for refining, but for judgment, when the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. They'll be kindling. And so he talks about their names, or Malachi records for us, their names being written together as those who fear the Lord, this remnant of people 
this resolute body of worshipers, they repent and they want their names joined together and the Lord makes promises to them as a remnant. You who fear me, you who esteem my name, you will be mine in the end. Not just in the sense of ownership, I will hold on to you like a treasured possession. Their names are going to be written together because revival for them, just like revival for us, like I said a minute ago, is not a private reality. I told you last week, the Lord wants to shower them with grace and turn a feeble and fumbling people into a living, breathing festival and celebration. You can't party by yourself. That's part of the point. When I redeem you like this, the Lord says, I have to write your names together. I have to be kind to you together and collectively because you can't celebrate alone. The celebration and my grace are too full for that. So I want your names written together. I want you bound together, identified together with one life together as the believing remnant, those who fear and esteem me Because together you are my treasured possession. I will spare you together the way a father spares his son. You will see the distinction, but you will enjoy the distinction. You will enjoy your salvation, and you will praise me in the end together. So he writes their names together for that purpose, to be kind to them and for them to celebrate his kindness instead of the way we've seen it through the book. Naming Levi for the purpose of pointing out sin, and naming Judah for the purpose of pointing out sin. Now he has the people named together to celebrate redemption and restoration. And the beautiful picture of it is not just the burning of an oven, it's the burning of a sunrise. His grace will rise over them and pierce through, break through the darkness of their sin, their brokenness, and their blindness. The way the sun does at dawn. After the darkest part of the night, when you couldn't see anything, when you fumbled around, tripping, in cities, remember, that didn't have streetlights. You couldn't turn on your iPhone and find your way. Night was dark. And dark was scary. And dark was unsafe. And now the sun is going to shine, the sun of righteousness. And when it rises, it's a mixed metaphor, it will have healing in its wings. You should catch the imagery, but just in case you don't, from the earliest history in the church, we have always understood this sun of righteousness to be the S-O-N of righteousness as well. This is God's righteous Son, Jesus the Son, who rises over us with healing in His wings as He shelters His people under His atonement, under His life and obedience. Think of this passage and the beauty of it the next time you sing Hark the Herald this Christmas. Hail the Son of Righteousness. It's a sunrise and the beauty of light breaking through all the darkness of our sin and carrying with it the healing that we desperately need. 
As I think about this sunrise and I think about the imagery of the burning oven, both of these things burning brightly and intently, but with two totally different purposes, I can't help but think of another oven much earlier in Scripture. In Genesis 15, the Lord put Abraham into a half slumber so that he could make a covenant with him without Abraham passing through the severed animals to enact the covenant. The animals, remember, were cut in half because that's the promise of the covenant. If one of us breaks this, this deal, if one of us breaks this arrangement, this is what's supposed to happen to us. You get drawn and quartered, to put it in our way of speaking. And to keep Abraham from walking through the pieces, he puts Abraham in a sleep, and then the Lord passes through the pieces, but he appears as a very odd combination of things. Do you remember what they are? It's a flaming torch in an oven. It's actually the same kind of oven that's used here. The kind of oven that's described here as burning up the wicked and evildoers in judgment. It's not just God the victim, it's God the judge walking through the pieces, saying, I will be the victim if this is broken, and I will be the judge for those that I do not pull into the covenant. And so in both images of burning in this passage, we get a full-orbed picture of the gospel. The gospel has a severity to it. It makes us squirm sometimes. But the gospel is severe in both wrath and grace. For people who are never brought into the gospel, it would be uncharitable and unloving to lie to them and say, there's no real judgment apart from the grace of Jesus, apart from His sacrifice in our place, apart from His obedient life and His resurrection, there is no grace. There's just an oven of wrath. But with those things, He takes the wrath for us. He takes all the severe wrath for His people Not all of the people, the people whose names are written together because they fear and esteem the Lord. By His grace, He has given them fear and esteem for Himself and written their names together. And so for them, the severe wrath still exists, but it's absorbed by Jesus the Son on the cross. And for that reason, His rising over us is joyful and like a sunrise. Not impending judgment but the dawn of a new day. Because of him, his rising doesn't carry judgment with it. It carries healing instead. We are forgiven now, but we desperately need healing. Mark Van Vessem and I had this discussion last night. We were meeting with one of our covenant children in the congregation to talk about coming to the table. We stopped in the discussion to talk at length about justification and sanctification. That being forgiven and being made holy are two very different things, but they are inseparable. You never get one piece of the Lord's grace without the other. You cannot be sanctified unless you're justified. And if you're justified, you will necessarily be sanctified. In justification, the Lord chooses to see us as holy, holy like Jesus the Son. But in sanctification, He is really, slowly progressively making us holy until all the way at the end, the picture we have here, 
all the way at the end in the great day of the Lord when Jesus comes back with full grace and full judgment. And he rises over us with full healing in his wings. And we are healed and made whole finally and perfectly. And our struggle with sin is through. And that's the picture of the gospel we have most prominently here. Not just Jesus coming in the incarnation. That has been whispered through the book. It was shouted to us in the beginning of chapter 3, and we'll hear an echo of it next week. But the real hope of the book is that because of what Jesus did in his first coming, in the incarnation like John described in our confession of sin, being born pure, and sinless for us, to be obedient for us, to die in our place and the sacrifice for us, and then rising for us, the gospel isn't finished until he comes back for us. And that's the full hope that's pictured here. That's the sunrise, the dawn of the new day, of the new creation, when healing is final. When all of the sins, little and great, that you struggle with now and hate, the ones that nag at you, that pull at your conscience, that make you afraid, that keep you from wanting to be known by others in the church or outside of it, when all of those things are finally healed and put right, when you as broken people are actually finally, personally, and experientially made whole in Jesus' grace once and for all, Never again to say, I'm sorry. Never again to say, I've done it again. Never again to say, help me fight this sin, because the fight will be through. Hear me carefully. The fight isn't through yet. But one day it will be. One day, as we sung earlier, as we sang earlier, you who are weak and wounded, sick and sore, you will be strong and healed healthy. All the sickness, all the soreness, all the weakness will be taken away. You are poor and needy in yourselves, and you will be made whole in Him. But there's real hope to be had in the, in the knowledge and the promise that we will one day be made perfectly whole in Him. And in the meantime, He is slowly making us a little bit more whole each day. We are the ones who enjoy the pain of the refiner's fire now. And one day we'll enjoy the sunrise of His grace. As a quick aside, as I try to tie in last week with this idea of treasuring, I want you to notice that last week, when God talked about robbing him, He was addressing what you treasure. It's the same thing that Jesus uh, addressed in Matthew 5 when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It wasn't the other way around. Where you put your heart, your treasure will follow. Now, Jesus said it correctly, as he always did. Where you identify your treasure, your heart will follow. Your heart will chase the thing that you treasure. So last week was just one piece of this refining, one piece of this call for repentance. The real beauty of it is not last week's passage. 
Last week's passage is true and necessary, but the real beauty of it is not God just addressing what we treasure and what our heart chases. It's when we get to this passage and we find out not so much that he cares what we do with our treasure, but that we are his. You who have feared my name and esteemed me, you will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, and not mine for judgment, mine to treasure. The beauty of the gospel is that we are his treasure. In the work of redemption, his heart is chasing us. The way our foolish hearts might chase after any number of false treasures, he is calling us to treasure him, but he does it because he treasures us perfectly and his heart chases us fully. And the real beauty of it is getting to see Jesus' words in Matthew 5 They're actually applicable for God as well. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So now think about that from God's perspective. You are his treasure. He has treasured you, so his heart chases you. And in the end, he will be with you. That's the final picture of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling of God is among men. He will make his dwelling among us because his heart will follow all the way after us as his redeemed treasure. And that's the beauty of the hope held out to us. It's that his heart chases us all the way until we get to see the sunrise. It's a beautiful hope and it's a full one. But delaying that hope and waiting for it can be sickening at times. It can feel soul crushing. And you need to know that his heart is not broken over that. His heart is chasing you as his treasure. This morning I want to make one, one more very particular application for us as a church as we think about our names being put together. As we think about what it looks like for healing to come to us through Jesus along the way in our sanctification and finally one day in our glorification when he makes his dwelling with us, when he finally gets his treasure in full. Earlier in chapter 2, we saw that the lips of a priest are supposed to preserve knowledge. God said that true instruction is to be found in our mouths when we talk to each other as a priesthood. And sometimes that includes some loving but very frank discussion The larger catechism is helpful for me as I think about fleshing some of this out when it describes the responsibility of preaching. It says that it's supposed to be done diligently and plainly and faithfully, wisely applying ourselves to our necessities as hearers. What do we need to hear out of the passage? Like we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, the gospel becoming the lens through which we view our circumstances in our lives. What are our necessities? What things need to be viewed more clearly through the lens of the gospel? The larger catechism goes on to say, you should do it with love for God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming for his glory in things like our edification and growth together in grace. So I want you to think of these next few minutes like a family discussion. These are primarily for us in the theater with apologies to those in worship training. They belong in here with us, but they are performing a service, worshiping with our children. 
This is not a general application of this gospel for the church at large. This is for us as New St. Peter's. But really, those details are incidental. What they've exposed of us as a church over the last week is nothing that hasn't been true of us for years and months. The much larger issue is the way we live together and hope together as a people whose names have been written together in the gospel. These are not issues of the session versus the congregation. This is not issues, these are not issues of the session managing the congregation. And neither you nor we should ever think of the session as completely distinct from the congregation. Our names are written along with yours in the gospel, and your names are written along with ours in the gospel. And we hope in the same gospel. We hope in the rising of the same Son of Righteousness. We hope in the same healing together. Because in His grace, Jesus has made us one body together. And we live under His shepherding as our good shepherd and His providence. And we do that together. And we're going to have to love and trust each other to be working for each other's mutual good. And that trust is going to be something we do together. When we hear things that upset us or when we have questions, we need to live like family together. A few of you have come up to us with questions and we have had follow-up discussions that I think have been helpful I think have been a little fuller and, and we've been able to encourage each other with our real and singular and shared hope of the gospel. And that is the hope that we have for Rich and for us. You know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Relationships are costly. And our relationships together in the church are no exception. But as you think about relationship and costs, remember this. God is never good to me at your ultimate expense. And God is never good to you at my ultimate expense. Our mutual good might cost us some pain together, but not ultimately. He has been good to us at the ultimate expense and judgment of his son and his son only. Because of him, his plans have always been and will always be to redeem and to heal and to treasure us. We get distracted by circumstances, but in all circumstances, we have to remind each other that God never gets distracted by being good to some of his people so that he forgets to be good to others. He has always been, and he is being now, and he will always be the Lord who never changes and is compassionate toward us, and the Lord who always is simultaneously good to Rich and Jennifer, and to New St. Peter's, and to me, and to my family, and to your family, and to our session, and to our home groups, and our visitors, and your friends in the church. And that doesn't mean that there won't be pain and difficulty along the way. It doesn't mean that we won't frustrate each other at times. 
But we need to remember together that the declarations of love and final healing stand like bookends around every pronouncement, every difficult statement, all the way through the book of Malachi. It started with the declaration, I have loved you. And it ends with, you will be mine, my treasured possession. I will rise over you like the sun with healing in my wings. Jesus' perfect priesthood all through the book has reached through and passed the imperfect priesthood of his people for the purpose of bringing much-needed and enduring healing. And the same is true for us now. This is not a historical anecdote about the original hearers. Jesus' perfect high priesthood reaches through and past our imperfect and twisted priesthood. He does it to bring us enduring and much-needed and perfect and final healing. Our names have been written together to live under the gospel in the goodness of this Savior and no other. And our names are written together under this hope for perfect, ultimate, and unstoppable hope in salvation and healing in the Son of Righteousness. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have been infinitely kind to us. You are the Lord who never changes, and you have never changed in your purposes toward us. You have always intended our perfect healing. You have always intended our perfect reconciliation and restoration. You have always intended to break through our imperfect and twisted priesthood. None of these things have ever surprised you. Our grumbling and hard words against you have never surprised you. Our refusal to believe in your love for us has never surprised you, and it's your perfect love for us that overcomes all of our weak faith, all of our blindness. Lord Jesus, the beautiful thing about your grace and the brightness of your glory is that unlike light that we experience here and have known so far in our lives, your light is powerful enough to break through blindness. You are the Lord who shines forth in glory with healing in your wings, and you are also the Lord who gives eyes to see to blind, dead, foolish, and fickle people. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope that you hold out to us, the promise that you will heal us finally and fully one day, and we rejoice to know that you do not heal us grudgingly. We rejoice to know that because of our adoption in you, Father doesn't look at us and snicker. And he doesn't wince to be kind to us. Instead, he rejoices and he looks at us and says, You are my treasure and my heart will chase you until my dwelling is among you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace of your spirit and ask that you would continue it. Not because you've forgotten about it, but because in asking you remind us of your perfect goodness and your unwavering, unflinching grace and purpose toward us. We ask these things from you because we cannot do them for ourselves, but when you do them for us, there is full celebration and rejoicing. There is full comfort and hope. So we ask them from you and ask that you would continue those works in us, in our hearts, as you make yourself our treasure. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.